hidden headlines, faith, family, freedom. In this episode, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange arrested in London. A U.S. grand jury wants to question him over divulging state secrets, but the real secret is the hidden headline the establishment politicians and the media don't want you to consider. Those damning emails WikiLeaks published about Hillary Clinton. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also known as AOC, she claims that climate change is a major factor in the global immigration crisis. The hidden headline? She's playing a card straight from the hand of Karl Marx. No religion. The number of Americans who identify as godless increases dramatically. What's the church doing wrong? And the Georgia heartbeat law. Hidden headline. The Democrats are parroting the biblical words of Satan in their defense to their opposition of this rational law. These stories, plus my interview with the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, you've seen him on TV. His life story goes from shipwreck to ship shape. You will be inspired. It's all on this edition of Hidden Headlines. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I'm Brian Sussman. All these stories can be found on my website, briansussman.com. Just check out the blog. Let's begin with the Hillary emails. Listen, even if the Russians did provide the jaw-dropping Podesta emails from the Democrat National Committee to Julian Assange, I'm telling you, he was right to publish them on his website, WikiLeaks. Now, some of these emails that he did publish did divulge state secrets. But keep in mind, he's not a U.S. citizen. So for someone who's not a U.S. citizen to publish state secrets... Okay, we can debate over the the justification of that. But here's my point. What he did provide us with was the WikiLeaks email emails about Hillary Clinton and the Democrat National Committee and their attempt to take down Donald Trump. Let me tell you what those emails revealed. First of all, the emails revealed that the Clinton Foundation received millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia. Now, everything I'm telling you is... This is all verifiable. It's all in the emails, and it's never been properly explained. So maybe perhaps now it will come to light in the name of truth, in the name of justice, in the name of freedom. So the Clinton Foundation received millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia and Qatar, two of the major funders of radical jihad, two of the major funders of ISIS, the Islamic State, Now, for their donations as Secretary of State, it's interesting. Hillary paid them back by approving $80 billion in weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, enabling the Saudis to carry out a devastating war with Yemen. Now, in my mind, there's blood on Hillary's hands because that war eventually triggered a humanitarian crisis that was massive And estimates are that there were about 60,000 people who died in the process. Okay, that's one. Here's what else those WikiLeaks, Hillary, DNC, Podesta emails revealed. Hillary Clinton was paid $675,000 for speaking to Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs had a few events. Goldman Sachs, of course, the big investment firm. They had a few events. And in her lucrative talks, Clinton told these financial elites, it's all in the emails. 
was never reported by the mainstream media, only in the emails. She told these financial elites that she wanted to open trade and open borders. Her quote, open trade and open borders. She also refused to criticize Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, about their direct involvement in the 2008 financial meltdown, which really did cripple a lot of individuals in this country and totally caused some businesses and major corporations to go bye-bye forever. Now, one has to wonder what the Wall Street execs desired from Hillary in return for that that lucrative speaking fee of $675,000. Next. And this is a big one that we cannot overlook. The Clinton campaign worked to influence the Republican primaries to ensure that Donald Trump was the Republican nominee. You see, the Clintons were convinced Trump would be an easier foe to defeat than some of the other candidates. Boy, were they wrong about that. Next, Hillary Clinton obtained advanced information on the primary debate questions via CNN paid performer and Democrat strategist Donna Brazile, who, by the way, now, interestingly, is a paid liberal contributor to Fox News. Despite the fact that she knew some of the questions in advance, she still got her tail whipped by Donald Trump in that particular debate. And then here's number five. Of the 33,000 emails that came directly from Hillary Clinton's campaign, 1,700 of them were directly from Hillary Clinton. In other words, Hillary claimed at one point in time, if you remember, that the emails were about wedding plans and yoga classes and other vanilla personal issues. Instead, 1,700 of them were directly from Hillary. And we learned, among other things, that Hillary was the primary architect of the war in Libya. Because as Secretary of State, Hillary believed that the overthrow of Libya's Muammar Gaddafi would establish her credentials as future president. She wanted to be the Iron Woman. Instead, the war she sought has left Libya in chaos and probably has resulted in about 40,000 people dead. And so how did the Democrats respond to all this? By calling anyone who believes what I've just said to be as truth they call a conspiracy theorist. So thank you, Julian Assange. I have no idea how you got those emails, but you did. And they are damning. And maybe now a light of truth will be shown on all of this. And we'll start to see just who indeed is perhaps guilty of a crime here. Okay, we go from that to this. She's at it again. That's Democrat Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's once again illustrated her ignorance. Now, keep in mind, she is the person who identifies as a socialist Democrat or a Democrat socialist. She claims climate change is a major factor in the global immigration crisis. She states the United States would have blood on our hands if legislation is not passed to tackle climate change. She said that in a tweet. She said the far right loves to drum up fear and resistance to immigrants. But have you ever noticed they never talk about what's causing people to flee their homes in the first place? Perhaps that's because they'd be forced to confront one major factor fueling global immigration, climate change. Well, first off, she's, I'm assuming, referring to Latin America and all the people from Latin America making it into America or trying to. And I just might add, now I put on my cap as a meteorologist, a trained meteorologist. In my other life, I was actually a TV meteorologist, as some of you know. I've written a couple books on the subject. 
climate gate and eco-tyranny. So the climate of Latin America is and always has been quite variable. Uh, the climate of Latin America, uh, it ranges from the hot and humid Amazon River Basin to the dry and desert-like conditions of northern Mexico and southern Chile. You've got rainforest, you've got desert, you've got savanna, all found in this vast region. And by the way, it is a vast region. Rainforest, grasslands, desert scrub, tundra. Latin America spans a great distance on each side of the equator. And there are dramatic changes in elevation due to these massive mountain ranges, which create their own weather, so to speak. Additionally, you've got the warm currents of the Atlantic and the cold currents of the Pacific impacting the climate. You've got fertile farmland. You've got ranch land. And as I mentioned, you've got desert. People are fleeing Latin America, not because of the climate. Well, you could pick your climate in Latin America. You want to you live in someplace beautiful? Pick it. There's, there are plenty of climates to suit your fancy. People are fleeing Latin America, AOC, because of the horrid governments, the corrupt politicians, and socialism in general. For many traveling from Central America, violent crime and extreme poverty are the primary motivating factors. So they see the United States and this big carrot we dangle and our ridiculous immigration policies and our tax-funded giveaways, and they come here. So here's the deal. Ocasio-Cortez, she's discussed the role of global, global warming and national security on many, many levels. She has this thing called the Green New Deal, a measure that calls for a massive overhaul of the nation's economy and energy use to cut emissions. Um, most estimates are that to do what she wants to do, it's going to be $600,000 per household, $93 trillion. This is crazy. Folks, this is right from the Karl Marx playbook, as I've shared with you on Hidden Headlines before. Karl Marx and Joseph and his writing partner, Mr. Engels, uh, theorized that the environment could be used as a tool, as a wedge, to convince people that their ways, their socialist ways and communist ways, were the right ways. Because they didn't believe in the private ownership of land. They didn't believe in the private ownership of farms. They didn't believe in the private ownership of livestock. They believed this should all be collective. It should be owned by the people. And as I've also told you, a disciple of Marx came up with the name ecosystem for this very, very purpose. And as I've also shared with you, Lenin, Lenin, when he took over Russia, Lenin wrote extensive papers about the use of land and the use of the environment and how it was hands off to the people. It had to be owned by the state only. And we saw what happened, of course, when Stalin takes over and the massive starvation that took place in Russia because of these very same practices tried to be tried trying to be put in place. So everything Ocasio-Cortez is theorizing has been put in practice by the Soviets in the past, and it was disastrous. Millions and millions and millions of people died. Actually, if you total it up in the name of communism in the last century, over 100 million people perished. But the problem is with AOC and others of her ilk, they really believe that, hey, give us another shot. We can do it better this time. And for that, I find her to be a very, very dangerous character. No shock to me, this next story on Hidden Headlines, the number of Americans who identify as having no religion has risen 266% since 1991. 
Um, so here's the interesting thing. Uh, people with no religion, they're known as nuns, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns among statisticians. And they account for 23% of the U.S. population now. So it's interesting. We have the nuns at 23%, Catholics at 23%, evangelicals at 22.5%. So it's pretty much split, you know, thirds, nuns, thirds, Catholics, thirds, evangelicals, and then a few others mixed in. For example, Jewish people, my people. Of course, I'm one of those interesting Jews that also believes in the entire book from Genesis to Revelation, and then Muslims, etc. So this survey, this survey has been tracking people since 1972, and it's offering a comprehensive insight into the evolving face of religion over what? Over more than four decades. So really the big takeaway here is that people with no religion are growing in this country, and... The evangelicals are seeing, you know, evangelicals are all about spreading the word. Catholics, not, not so much spreading the word, right? You look at some of the other minority religions of this country, the largest, which is uh, Judaism. They're not into necessarily spreading the word and looking for more converts. But that's what the evangelicals are supposed to do. They're supposed to look for more converts, and it's not working. So I just wonder, why is it not working? Now, again, I'm the Jewish guy that believes in the entire book from, from Genesis to Revelation. I've spent a lot of time uh, in churches over the years and have volunteered and, and worked in churches over the years. So I think I know a little bit about that scene. And I think the problem really is more and more of these evangelical churches are more concerned about not offending people. They're more concerned about not offending people, whereas they should be very, very concerned about reaching people with the message of Jesus. So people want the real deal, in my opinion. Um, when we preach the real deal, that Jesus died for our sins, when we preach the real deal, that he was raised from the dead, that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one, and that he's coming back to judge the world and take his people home, and that surrendering his life uh, your life, I should say, to his will is your only safe option. People respond when you plead with them to come to know him and you show them that their only hope is him. They respond. At least this has been my this has been my experience over the years. And, and where do we get this from? We get this from the Apostle Paul. Think about this. Book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So my point is, Paul is saying, I'm an ambassador. I represent God. And I'm imploring you. I'm pleading with you to come to know him. And I'm doing so as if he were actually speaking through me. I think if we just had more preachers, more pastors, more teachers in the churches taking that opportunity to go out and plead with people to come to know him. On Easter Sunday, when they have lots of visitors, to show them that their only hope is in Christ and that he is the way, truth, and life, and there is no other way to the Father but through him. When we plead with people, I believe they respond. But when we're touchy-feely and we don't want to rub people the wrong way and we want to we want to sort of uh, just make them feel good about themselves. Well, 
then that's what you get. You get more nuns and fewer evangelicals, fewer converts. You may get more people in the pews by just being nice and not offending people, but is that really what it's all about? Putting butts into the seats? No, I think it's about putting souls in heaven. So that's my take on hidden headlines based on that particular survey. Now, here we go from that to this. We should never be surprised when pro-abortionists use crafty rhetoric to trick people into believing that good is evil and evil is good. Such is the case with yet another liberal Democrat politician. So I'm watching MSNBC after the fact. I saw the replay. This is uh, the AM Joy program, and they've got Georgia Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams on. She's the one who lost the governor election last year. And she's talking about the Georgia fetal heartbeat bill. Now, this is a bill that bans abortion as soon as a doctor can detect a heartbeat. It's the fetal heartbeat bill. Now, first of all, I don't use the word fetus purposely. I realize it's a Latin word that does indeed uh, does imply a, a human life. But I think that the word kind of sanitizes the situation. Let, let's call it a baby. Because if fetus is another word for a baby, let's just use the word baby. See, when you use fetus, it sounds very scientific and clinical and you don't get too emotionally attached. It sounds like a blob, a blob of tissue. So let's just think about this. This bill banned, this law bans abortion as soon as a doctor can detect a, a heartbeat. So you have this Georgia gubernatorial candidate, Stacey Abrams, who may, it may well end up being a Democrat uh, vice presidential candidate going forward. She calls this thing evil, evil. She calls this bill that would protect a baby's life as evil. Now, what, you know what this, what comes to memory for me is Genesis 3.1. Remember, well, I'll just read it to you. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, right, God never said that. Satan was taking God's words and twisting them around to confuse Eve so that she would end up eating the apple. So my point is, the Democrats, the left, the liberals, they're so easily able to take language and turn it on a dime. My God, think about this, please, please. They're talking about a bill, a law that would protect a baby when that heartbeat can be detected from being sucked out of the womb, and they're calling that evil. They're calling... The, the law that protects the baby in the womb, evil. So here you go. She was discussing a potential Hollywood filming boycott in Georgia. So all of a sudden, the Hollywood libs get out there and say, we're going to boycott Georgia. We're not going to bring any of our movies to Georgia. She's discussing this, and she said, we have to be a state, Georgia. We have to be a state that is not only friendly to businesses, we have to be friendly to the woman who, women who work in these businesses. You should not have to worry about your ability to control your body because the government has pushed such an abominable and evil bill that is so restrictive. It's not only bad for morality and our humanity, it's bad for business. I'm thinking, what is she talking about? This is, this is a bill that will save female babies' lives. 
This is a law that is good and not evil. This is a law that's all about morality as opposed to immorality, and they spin it and turn it on a dime. My gosh. So thank God that this woman lost her bid for governor to pro-life Republican Brian Kemp. And uh, she went ahead and just criticized pro-life lawmakers at large. You know, it's really a shame. She's a black woman. Shame on her. Shame on her. Because Planned Parenthood has been targeting black babies forever. It was established by a woman named Margaret Sanger. You do the research on it yourself. This woman was a racist. This is a woman who was targeting the black community in the name of eugenics. And to this very day, the number of babies aborted in the black community exceeds the number of babies born in the black community in certain cities in certain major cities around the country, what I just stated is true. Shame on this woman. Shame on the Democrat Party. She said this, this, this law, she said, is dangerous. I think it's, sci- it's scientifically unsupportable. I know it will cause harm to women, especially to those women who face the highest rate of maternal mortality already. I don't even know what she's talking about. But I can tell you this. This is scientifically supportable, not insupportable. When you can detect a heartbeat in a little baby, you know that there is life there. So again, shame on her. Shame on the Democrats for being the party of death. And with that in mind, I stop. I stop right now because I need to be inspired. And you need to be inspired as well. I had a wonderful conversation recently with Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy. I had him on my radio program And I said, Mike, let's stretch out and just talk about your faith on my Hidden Headlines podcast because we have an opportunity to do that. And Mike Lindell's story goes from shipwreck to ship shape. Now, my pillow, he has sold 44 million of these pillows. Mike was a functioning cocaine addict for nearly three decades. And he told me, and we're going to dive right into this interview, he told me his personal problems began when he was just a little boy, six or seven years old, and the divorce of his parents. Uh, He was forced to go to a new school. He didn't know anybody at the school. He was shy and withdrawn. And he stated from the outset of our conversation that um, he does not believe that people are born addicted. He said there was a lot going on in his life. That's how he became a drug addict. And we'll pick up the conversation from there. That you're not born an addict. I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe when they say, oh, you know, addiction's a disease. Come to our treatment center and we'll pay us 50 grand. And and did you have insurance? You know, um, I don't believe that. I believe that there's inner pains we all have that these addictions mask or they mask who we really are. Uh, inside because you don't you maybe have uh, wounds or shame and so in the 1980s I became uh, when I was you know I, I even drank later later uh, as far as a uh, teenager would go I think I didn't start drinking until 16 or 17 and and uh, where and I but I did get in I tried cocaine in, in uh, about 1982 or 83 and instantly I'm going wow I can talk to people it was a um, and I became hooked on it. I became a uh, very functioning cocaine addict for 20-some years. So cocaine gave you the boldness to overcome your otherwise shy personality. I was actually 
at my five-year reunion, I was I had dropped out of college two quarters into it, and at my five-year reunion, all my friends are now graduating from college, or they had a, um, um, they're graduating from college, and and um, or they're um, and starting families, or or they came with the same employer where they're moved up the ladder already, and. I had worked at a grocery store and in a drive-in movie theater. Fired at the grocery store, and I wasn't. I was just. Uh, I had had all these things happen to me. The mafia owing the mafia money for football bets and um, crashing motorcycles and getting traffic tickets and uh, skydiving and and uh, and uh, parachute only opening part way and all these near-death experiences. So at my five-year reunion, I'm bragging about all this stuff, but inside. I want what those guys want, and there I'm kind of the center of attention. This, uh, you know, true stories, but it's like they're going, "What? Wow!" You know. So that was me. So, Mike, you're totally addicted. You're living in the fast lane. At what point did you get married? And I know you have four kids. So when did all that happen? That was what I wanted the most, and I and I got that. 1987, married, uh, married a gal. We had four kids, very functioning for 20 years as a. Uh, as a cocaine addict, or a cocaine addict, and uh, but that switched to crack in the early 2000s, and and crack is different than cocaine, and I could not. It's very hard. Anyone that's a crack addict out there, it's uh, there's a reason we say, "What do you want, crack?" Um, um, it's uh, it brought it to a whole new level where you couldn't. Um, I ended up having to sell. I was always an entrepreneur. Had to sell my bar. I had a small bar, which wasn't good for an addict, but. At the time, it was devastating. Just back when, I, like when I got fired at the grocery store, back when. But uh, you know, I looked that back now, and it was actually a godsend. So explain that to us, Mike. It was a godsend because when I sold that bar, actually, and uh, um, God gave me a dream of this pillow in uh, um, 2004. It sold the bar in the in the fall of 2003 or the summer of 2003, and. Uh, I was, um, um, I didn't have any skills, so to speak. So I get this dream of this pillow, and um, it took about 10 months to invent. I put everything I had into it, and, and I, I was turned down everywhere once I had the pillow. And uh, so at that point, um, you know, that it's, it, at that point, they said, well, how'd you invent this when you were a crack addict? Well, you know, I got this in a God dream, but also uh, with this, with, uh, I put everything I had. Every day my kid would I'd come home from school, one of my kids, we'd be tearing foam and trying different things out on the deck and doing all these things. And, and it was kind of, uh, it was kind of devastating when it was just turned down everywhere once we had it. And, uh, but it, they, in January then of that year, this guy called me and said, uh, are you the guy that, and I had given him my phone number. He said, are you the guy that invented this pillow here in Minnesota? He, and I said, yeah. And he goes, well, this pillow changed my life. And he said, uh, I run the Minneapolis Garden, Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And he said, sure. And I went into the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show, and I changed it. I put a table in between me and me and the people, and I could actually talk to people without having to be on drugs for my self-worth. But one thing happened that was very key to my story is people at that show, people then came back the next day and made a point of coming to my booth and going, this pillow changed my life. And, and wow, this is amazing. It's the best product I've ever bought. And, and I, inside it made me feel good. It wasn't about the money. It was that it was 
wow, I feel good now. I have some self-worth. And, and uh, so when you ask the question uh, about the, you know, the drug addiction, then, then things start. So I did shows for five or six years, but um, home shows and fairs to support my family. But during that time, it's a parallel railroad track where people tried to take my company. They tried to take uh, the manufacturing. They tried to steal the idea. And, and plus our own, my own crack addiction was full-blown then. And we, we were actually making the pillows uh, or, or labeling them in our living room. And, and it was literally lights out. They were turned out our power. My wife left me at 20 years. And this all happened in the spring of 2007. Um, everything collapsed at once. And, and then for the next uh, few years, it was like a pulse where my pillow was like a little heartbeat. That it would be flatlined, and all of a sudden a little heartbeat. It just it hung on there where it was. I look back now, and God protected that. But another thing that happened is I kept having the, whenever I would do them shows, people would come up, and I felt good that they were, you know, I was making a difference. And um, it got up to even in 2008, then I had uh, drug dealers do an intervention on me. Wait just a second, Mike. Did you say that you had drug dealers doing an invent, uh, an intervention on you? The three of the biggest drug dealers. They, I came out. I'd been up for 14 days, and they said, and "They go, uh, I go. What's going on?" They go, we're, "We're cutting you off. You've been up for 14 days." And and uh, and the, the one of the guys, he ain't getting any from any of my guys. And they left. And I waited till the one went to sleep. The last one went to sleep. I went down to the streets of Minneapolis, and I couldn't get cracked anywhere. I came back upstairs, and the guy says, he goes, uh, give me, he goes, how'd that work out for you? And I'm all upset. And he goes, he goes, give me your phone. I'm going to take a picture of you. He goes, you're going to need it for that book you've been telling us about. And he goes, we're not, he goes, you've been telling us for years now that my pillow is just a platform for God, and you're going to come back and help us someday and get us all out of this addiction and this dealing and stuff, and we're not going to let you die on us. And, and, uh, so I did not end up going to bed, and two days later, I actually had to get uh, another story I haven't told too much, but I had to get papers out to my brother, which was about 30 miles out of Minneapolis, and to get, we were working on this little schoolhouse, and I was going to go to court the following week for this charge. I had a warrant out for my arrest, and I was going to be found innocent of these charges. And, but I had to take a chance. If I don't get these papers to my brother, my pillow's not here. So I took a chance. I drive all the way out to the schoolhouse, and I pulled in, and there, by, as, as fate would have it, uh, Larry the cop is pulling right by me. He turns around. He wheels around. He said, Mike, you're under arrest. The more blah, blah, blah. And I said, I said, Larry, I said, these papers, if they don't get to my brother, I said, I've seen it. Millions of people in the future that have something to do with God and this pillow being a platform, my pillow being a platform. And if you, whatever you do right now, um, they're going to be, if he doesn't get this, it's all going to go away. And, and, and I said, and I'll be found, you're going to arrest me anyway. I'll be found innocent next week. And if I'm not, I promise you can arrest me anytime and I'll have cocaine on me. And he looked at me and he goes, what? And he goes, uh, he goes, call your brother. So I do He did those papers and now nine years went by and I seen him this last fall at the Carver parade. I was throwing out pillows to the little kids. <laughs> And here um, he comes up in his squad car. I haven't seen him since then. And he goes, Mike, I go, Larry. And he goes, do you remember what I did? He goes, am I going to be in your book? And, and, and I said to Larry, I said, I said, 
why did you do it, Larry? And he goes, he goes, your passion. He goes, you really believed it. And he wow. said, um, so he's actually going to be in the book. But they, wow. um, I just thought that was an amazing story back there prophetically. You know, Mike, here's the, so there are a lot of things to unpack with this. First of all, I think you need to explain to our listeners, and I've seen this before. My, my daughter is a licensed marriage and family counselor. She works with addicts. Uh, my son-in-law addicted for many years to everything. Um, and then being in church circles the way we have evangelical church circles, I mean, I'm, I'm around guys who have, you know, have stories similar to yours. So I've, I've heard this, but can you please explain to our audience how you could be addicted to a drug like cocaine or crack and still have a genuine belief in God? Well, my, you know, back then, you know, I had a, I was, I would always, I would be, prof, I had a kind of a prophetic gift or whatever, but not, I would actually, as I was talking to people, even when we'd be doing, when I had my bar and afterwards we'd be at the, you know, at my friend's house, or whatever, I'd be telling these guys about revelation and end times and stuff I read about in jail in the Bible and, and, uh, and that we should quit. And they would quit that day. And find Jesus, and I'd still, and I would still go. What did I say? I'm losing friends. Well, you know, I had this, <laughs> I had this, um, um, you know, I wore my cross on TV and stuff, and uh, you know, to finish the addiction story, I, in 2008, when they did that, I, you know, it got to be December of 2008, and my friend came back. He had been, he had been my equal. We both started cocaine at the same time, and we both had started. Uh, crack cocaine at the same time, but he had found the Lord and been freed of it three days, three years earlier, and I had not seen him for a year. And I'm all by myself, December of '08, and uh, the end is near. And here, you know, as far as uh, things that just collapsed, I was losing another this other place I was living in. I lost my house, my marriage, everything gone. And uh, he came out there, and I go, Dick, what are you doing here? He goes, well, The Lord led me here. He goes, What's going on? And I said, Well, as long as you're here. I have questions questions for you, and I said um, um, there was. And I said, "Is it boring, Dick?" And he said, "No, man, it's not boring." And I said, "And I'm, you know, questions only he could answer because he was my equal." Now a month later, I knew my calling was going to be gone. It wasn't was this my bottom in, in addiction? I don't know, but it was that definitely I knew one more day what God had picked me for. That calling was going to be gone. And I, my, I made a deal with God that night. I said, you know what, God, I'll do this platform thing. If I wake up in the morning, I don't ever want to have the desire for these drugs or alcohol again, and then I'll do this platform thing because it scared me. My calling scared me. I, you know, And I didn't even know how big it was going to be, but I just, I'm going, wow, that sounds horrible if I'm going to do this, all this stuff and not have my, you know, the drugs and all these bad things that had happened to me and, and it's kind of feeling sorry for myself type thing. Well, well, I did wake up that next day on January 16, 2009, and I didn't have the desire anymore. But then two months later, I actually felt led to go into my church. Uh, they had an outpatient treatment there, faith-based treatment center. And I went in there, and I, and I felt led there, and I told the counselor, you know, this, this, and this, and this. What I, you know, I, I quit cracking everything two months ago, and, and uh, I'm telling them all this stuff. And, and uh, I get into the first class and tell them about how much you know, how much drugs you get. You know, we don't care about uh, what you did, how much you did. He goes, let's talk about your father. And he went back and, you know, to all these things. And that's where I started planting these seeds of why I was addicted in the first place and uh, planted more seeds of, uh, uh, of God. And so now to accelerate that, when you ask me, 
uh, about being, a, you know, a crack and having a belief. Yeah, did I believe in God? Yes, but did I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? No. Hmm. And and uh, when you get up to uh, to finish the story, so then when I quit everything, miracles did start happening where. Um, you know, kind of getting my company back or whatever. I, you know, just what I mean by that is just doing shows and stuff. And actually, we got up to my first infomercial. I said, I told my friends and family, let's all pool our money. And uh, I, if no one's going to take my pillow, we'll do an infomercial. It's going to be the biggest one ever in, in history. And, and uh, I didn't know infomercials fail. It's just to, just to get into the box stores. And, and, uh, I really, you know, I believed in it so much. Well, we went to film this in August of 2011, and and I wanted a real audience, just a friend of mine, and they brought in a producer, flew him in. That it was a friend of mine that was doing this uh, this infomercial thing, and he flew in this producer. We were doing our reads the night before, and he texted my friend. He said, "This guy's the worst guy I've ever seen. He's never going to make it. This. Why did you even bring me up here?" And and. Uh, the next day we went to film this, and I'm and I'm. Uh, it was terrible. I couldn't talk. I was so afraid of people, afraid of talking. And and I said, let's bring in a table and and uh, bring in a table and and get rid of the teleprompter. And we just did it naturally, like I had done at all them shows. And that launched October 7, 2011. And I had like five employees, me and my kids. And 40 days later, I had 500 employees. Wow. Now, now, the story I'm getting to is we just exploded so fast, and, you know, I'm wearing my cross on TV, and I'm getting attacked for that and all kinds of stuff. And by the summer of 2014, we had been we had took in $100 million in six months in 2012, and, and, and they're going, Mike, you need to be CEO, and we need an HR department. I go, all oh, that stuff sounds horrible. I don't make pillows and help people. Well, to other companies that took advantage of me, and I was millions of dollars in the hole, and I didn't use a bank. By the summer of 2014, we were within two days of going under, even after all that great success. And and I met a gal then that she had something I didn't have, which was this relationship with Jesus. She goes, and she's telling me we're praying, and she goes, and this, and that was a miracle there. But I, I go, yeah, I do. I believe in God, and I, I believe in God and all this stuff, and Okay, and um, and anyway, they and, and and so I believe in God, and they uh, and she we we started proactively. She's praying for the company, and and actually went, you know, we we got big again. We got out of this. We, we and and uh, in 2015 we expanded, expanded, expanded. It was like all uphill, but it was February 18th, 2017 which is just a few short years ago. And I uh, went into this uh, retreat, and, and I wanted what, what Kendra had. And in that retreat, I did a full surrender to Jesus. And, um, and he shows up, and I'm going, okay. I walked out of there going, wow, I can go out now and talk to like I did at U.S. Bank Stadium a few months later about uh, – uh, and praying for with 50,000 people leading him in prayer and speak out for Jesus with the same passion as I did a pillow. Wow. That's that's what it's that's what this that's what this entire journey has been about, Mike. It was you coming to that place of surrender before the savior of the universe. That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, it's been quite a journey and my pillow is just a platform for a much bigger purpose and 
anybody out there that, uh, you know, I'm going to be doing this addiction platform where these, where you, uh, we're going to have hope, the help that I've vetted, and wow. mentors to mentor uh, addicts all over the country when they come out of these. And just to use the platform that God's given me for to bring people to Jesus. And, they, you know, God gave us a second chance on, on uh, November 8, 2016. He gave us grace. And, to you know, over these, over these you know, right now, to see get as many people saved as we can. I mean, this uh, where we were headed was a terrible place, mm-hmm. and and now uh, this this platform that I have, I just want to do it to spread the word. And and if you want to be proactive in prayer, the God's will is in the word. Yep. And if you stay in the word, you can proactively pray. You know, you might pray that back then, and you believe in God, and go, oh God, you know, please get me out of this, whatever. Well, it might not be God's will, and. Uh, you want to get as well, get in the Word, and do a full surrender to Jesus, and it's amazing. You know, Mike, well, let's also talk for just a moment, because there are so many people who, you know, they're churchgoers, they believe in God, they're very sincere about that belief, but let's distinguish between that individual and and where you were, where you realized you had to surrender to God. It wasn't just enough to believe, it was surrender. That's right. the big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the big difference. You do a complete surrender, and you say, "Jesus, I want you know. You be, you guide me. You be my. You be. Uh, um, I'm here because of you. You died on the cross. You forgave my sins, and you have that personal relationship with Jesus. It's different than saying going to clear your once a week to church and clear your tongue and say, "Oh yeah, I believe in God. There's something up there." It's just so much easier. It's so it's just so amazing when you can have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So even though you had come to a place where now you're you're sober, uh, you were you were this functioning drug addict. Then you come to the place of sobriety. You still hadn't surrendered to the Lord. So you knew there was something missing. You make this big decision to give your life over to Jesus. Talk to us about how your life has changed since then. Yeah, it's changed since then. I, I don't have, you know, before I would be okay. I pray, get me out of this, and I'll do this, and and uh, this belief. It's almost it's like a peace, like a like a my pillow. He's chairman of the board. I mean, we, you, it, the decisions come so easy. I pray every day for wisdom and discernment, but and these prayers get answered. So I'm not doing something that's not his will. I'm 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 uh you know I just came out with a uh, you know with a movie. I got part of a movie that's unplanned movie. I got you know part of that and. And if you'd have told me a few years ago to get part of that, I'm just, I knew it was the right thing. And it's, it's just gotten so much easier to be, I don't have anxieties. I don't have fear. Um, I don't, you know, if it's, if God, if Jesus wants me to do this, I do it. And I don't have any fear about that, of doing it. And it's, uh, um, it's just amazing to be able to, um, it's, it's, it's more of a peace, I guess. And, Mm -hmm. and. It seems like um, when you take worry, anxiety, and fear out of your life and, and let Jesus guide it, it's just like I can't even explain it. It's just easy. People say to me all the time, they go, wow, you work all the time. Blah, blah, blah. I love what I do, and also I have, I have peace. It seems, you know, where it's, it's, um, it's very rewarding life, you know, and um, 
I guess I don't, you know, I, there's just so much, it's just so much better. I can't say it's better in every aspect. Uh, that's awesome. So then, Mike, let's talk. We have a situation in this country where drugs are just pervasive. More and more people are addicted to drugs. When you see that going on in society, if you were to speak to that individual who may be listening right now, we don't even know it, who's addicted to drugs and wants to get off, what will you tell and what do you tell people in that situation? Well, I do have my Lindo Recovery Network coming out where you're going to have all these stories of hope where you put in a, you put in like your age and what you're addicted to, like a 22-year-old opiate addict might not relate to a 50-year-old meth addict. And all these stories of your age and your addiction are going to come down. And I've vetted thousands of treatment centers in this country. They're, they're all the faith based These are the ones that work. And then when you get out of there, you're gonna, I'm going to have mentors that I'm paying all over the country are going to help you. But just a complete circle of hope, help, and mentorship. But since it's right now, as you're out there, if you're an addict that's out there now, trust me, go to, I can pick some right that I know are in your area, the Salvation Army, Teen Challenge, Union Gospel. These faith-based centers, they work. They work. The success rate coming out of them, and it's like an apprenticeship while you're in there. You go get help, and you trust me. They work. You come out of there. They don't just say, it's not like the centers were, here, you got insurance, here's $50,000, and I'm going to stay off my drugs and come out. They, they, saw, they, they get to the root of why you're addicted, and it's just they're amazing. And, that, and, they're, they're, and by the way, most of them, Salvation Army Team Challenge like that, they're, they're, they don't cost you anything. You can walk in the door. There, um, you don't need a five, uh, uh, rule 25. You don't need uh, um, insurance, and and it's uh, it's you have nothing to lose. Go in there, and uh, you're going to find out. Stay there, put you know a week or two. A lot of people don't go. Well, I can do it on my own, or I can do it on my own. No, you're going to come out there, and there, and if there's addicts out there where you've went through numerous, numerous, uh, and I'm speaking to the addict now. A lot of a lot of addicts families get. You know, they get all these ads saying that they're, uh, um, you know, come to our treatment center. They've monetized it. I'm telling, shocking to the addict, if you want to get help, here's what works. Uh, you, you know, these faith-based treatment centers that get, you're going to have God as your basis when you get out of there. You're going to have Jesus. But, and don't be afraid. You can go in there and it, you can walk right, right out the door. But I'm telling you, as a former cocaine addict, this is what works. And that concludes my exciting interview with the guy who's fired up. That's Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy here on Hidden Headlines. Don't forget more information about me. Just go to briansussman.com. You can follow me on Facebook as well, Brian Sussman Show. Twitter, Brian underscore Sussman. That is when I'm not being shadow banned. <laughs> and there are ways to reach out and contact me via email at my website, briansussman.com. If you like this Hidden Headlines episode, please share. I do appreciate it. That's the latest. Until next time, next week, I'm Brian Sussman, signing off.